Hello, and welcome to another episode of SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. On today's episode, we're honored to have Dean Foreman, the Chief Economist for the American Petroleum Institute. Dean, thank you so much for coming on. Grayson, great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here on the podcast to talk about the natural oil and gas industry. It's one of the most incredible industries, I think, that is completely mislabeled uh, in the marketplace. And I want to start the conversation by pointing out one of, in my opinion, one of the most important facts. The natural gas and oil industry supports 11 million jobs in the United States. That's absolutely incredible. Could you talk about some of the incredible opportunities that this industry uh, creates across the country? It's really phenomenal, and it has changed in a transformative way over the last decade. We call it the U.S. energy revolution, but the advent of shale production, which is a combination of technologies, it gets called fracking, so it's hydraulic fracturing, but none of that would have been possible without 3D imaging and horizontal drilling and this combination of experimentation of how to produce something that people tried for decades but really couldn't economically do so. And what they found is that the source rock for a lot of the traditional conventional oil and natural gas production in the United States could be produced with this, this combination of technologies. And what it's meant is that we've seen the employment take off and then it's gone through a cycle where there's a big price downturn of oil in 2015 as OPEC responded to the fact that the United States was growing so rapidly. And it's really changed the global dynamic for energy. And we've gone from being a net importer in 2008 of like 12 million barrels per day to as of September last year being a net exporter of oil for the first time really since the early 1950s, but also of total energy. So we're, we're now an exporter and tops in the world in terms of production of natural gas and oil and natural gas liquids and an exporter. And this is supporting between direct, indirect, and induced employment some 11 million jobs nationwide. And what is the economic impact that that's having across local communities across the United States? Well, it, it varies, but it's in the trillions. And we estimate that... It, depending upon what would happen, future regulatory changes on the fracking side when we've looked at a fracking ban and what that might mean, yeah, that could be worth $7 trillion over a period. So in the way that we frame these things, we're trying to understand the whole value chain, starting with oil and gas production, looking at manufacturing and petrochemicals all the way through the value chain. So it's motor fuels. Everybody's a consumer in that sense. But it truly, for states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, even Colorado, New Mexico, it's been transformative. And if we go back to states, especially across the Midwest, which are sensitive to energy costs for manufacturing, for agriculture, this has also been a really enabling set of technologies that has improved the competitiveness fundamentally of these economies. If you think about what they look like after the great financial crisis in 2008-9, Pennsylvania and Ohio are really the best example of that because it's fundamentally transformed the economy, a lot of high-quality jobs, good wages going into the economy, and the whole of pipeline infrastructure across the United States has really reversed as a result of this. So traditionally, the Northeast United States was higher costs for energy and was either importing it from Canada or Europe or other places, or taking it from the U.S. Gulf Coast, which was your traditional production center. And what's happened in the last really five to ten years is these pipelines have been reversed. It's Ohio and Pennsylvania's gas that has pushed into the Northeast. 
It has reversed these pipelines going back to the U.S. Gulf Coast. It's been gas-on-gas competition from Canada, the U.S., Northeast and the Rocky Mountains and the Chicago region. So that mid-continent Chicago region is super competitive now in terms of energy. And so it describes what you're describing to me as a healthy market. It's definitely a healthy market, and it's it's not a market that is without its own challenges. Though we've had this U.S.-China trade agreement, but that's just one of multiple flavors of different trade restrictions that have been put in place in recent years. We have very integrated supply chains from Canada all the way down through the United States to Mexico. So that's that's an issue as well in that to do that efficiently, all of it's enabled by infrastructure and transportation. So where that comes together is being able to have things that can efficiently move and adapt to the times as we've had changing trends in globalization. No, that's fascinating um, because transportation infrastructure and natural gas and oil all go hand in hand. You put the gasoline in your car that takes you a place, you, you ride on the road, and, and that's infrastructure. And in um, 20, November 2019, the, the, it was an incredible month for the oil and gas industry. The U.S. produced a record 12.8 million barrels per day, number one in the world. I have to ask you the question that you probably asked every day. Is the United States now energy independent? Whether you call it energy independent, energy dominant is the the administration's term, or the fact that it's energy interdependent because so much of this is being enabled by international trade, yes, it is. And we've gotten that record from November of 12.8 has actually grown as of December to 12.9 million barrels per day. So yet another record in another month. Uh, And this is happening despite even less drilling. So this tells us by U.S. Energy Information Administration standards that the productivity is continuing to increase and that this backlog that we have of wells that have been drilled but not yet completed, those are also coming to market because of new infrastructure that's been installed in recent months. So it really is a phenomenal story on the supply side. And for two years running, the U.S. has met not just the growth in U.S. demand for liquid fuels, but globally, when we look at the whole of what the world has needed as incremental new supplies year on year, for two years running, the U.S. has been the one that stepped up and done that. And OPEC has actually dialed back, reduced its output to compensate for the fact that the U.S. has had so much success. I mean, the U.S. has had tremendous success and. Uh, the Dow is clearly on track to pass 30,000 uh, for the first time. And as Barron's recently said in, in a column, it's not going to stop there. With a growing economy comes a growing demand for energy. W- let's talk about the positive impact the oil and gas industry is going to have to continue that growth. So when we talk about the financial market versus the real economy, historically we've got a dichotomy between the two. And in most nations, they're really not one and the same. Where they come together in the U.S. is through consumption and the fact that so many U.S. households have their savings in financial markets and feel wealthier as the market's done really well. And it has done phenomenally well over the last couple of years, especially this last one where it's up 20 to 30% year on year. So to continue growing, the, the main thing that drives that is corporate profitability, right? That is your first and foremost driver. And then risk aversion or risk tolerance on top of that Uh, is your multiple on top of corporate earnings that helps value the stock market. Energy has been fundamentally enabling and transportation has been fundamentally 
enabling of the economy and economic growth. And some of the materials that I've shared with you here and that we publish on a quarterly basis continue to track that relationship between the macroeconomy and its growth and how much we see in terms of energy demand growth and especially liquid fuels. For oil or liquid fuels in particular, it's kind of moved in lockstep. And here's a comparison you can use at home. If you go to the World Bank and you look at their estimate of world economic growth, and they would have said in 2019 that it was 2.6%. If you divide by two, simple rule of thumb, you get 1.3. And roughly, roughly speaking, in million barrels per day, that's the amount of new liquid fuels that the world needed in 2019. So it's basically, in, in economics lingo, an elasticity of 0.5. But if you just divide by two, that is going to get you pretty much the way there. Now, that growth continuing above a million barrels per day each year is expected by the U.S. EIA, by the International Energy Agency and others to slow along with the economy. And globally, we've seen where in 2019 the economy slowed relative to 2018 and is expected globally to stabilize over the next two years. The trajectory of U.S. economic growth has slowed. and It's been um, in the low 2% range last year and expected to go just under 2% this year and next. What's changing with this, though, is that the trade deal and things that help uh, do triage to the global economy and help support China have a nice symbiotic relationship that has a direct pulse on the demand for total energy and oil in particular. So that's how it all ties together and how the financial markets ultimately link back to energy. And Another relationship that's kind of been turned on its head is it used to be the case that we would look at the global economy and the U.S. economy and say, well, with the cost of energy, if oil goes up, the financial markets and the economy are going down because yeah. it's a cost, just like a tax. But now that the U.S. is energy independent or energy interdependent, we've seen that relationship turned on its head. So the Ohio and Pennsylvania examples I gave you, but it's Colorado and it's New Mexico and it's Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma. It's one after another of states where they are producing regions. Their economy is pro-cyclical with energy prices. So a big downturn in prices actually hurts them in a local and very personal way where whole communities now depend on these industries. So it's been a nice sweet spot these last few years where we've seen oil and natural gas in price ranges that have been fundamentally enabling of productivity and the ability to produce from a state and local level have helped companies succeed and grow as their productivity is increasing and their financial strength is improved relative to what it was with the price downturn in 2015. But yet consumers are also winning here because if you think of just the comparison back to five years ago, at the end of 2014, we still had oil at $100 a barrel and natural gas was also much higher than it is today. Who would think that here we are in the middle of winter it's cold outside. It's freezing here in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and natural gas at Henry Hub is below $2 per million BTU. There was a time, I mean, that's less than half what just a few years ago the industry would have thought is compensatory for drilling. And you think about it. So I grew up in Connecticut, and it gets very cold in Connecticut. <laughs> and uh, uh, my friend's parents, and we come coming into winter, what's the, you know, what's the heating oil price? And that was always, right. okay, how much is it going to cost to heat? And they were always worried as those, as you talked about, those prices always went up, up, and up. And it's phenomenal that we're energy independent, and I can't say it enough, which is awesome. It's having a positive impact on the American consumer. It's essentially a tax break. They're having more money in their pocket that they can do things. They can, you've seen the growth of experiences. 
more and more U.S. consumers are moving towards experience-based travel, which is having really good because then it's spreading that money um, around the U.S. economy. And you mentioned local communities uh, with the impacts of the prices of natural gas and oil. Are they concerned about the political element of going into this very large, well-documented presidential election, uh, the impact that if an elected official who does not have uh, pro stance on energy independence could have on their local community? Are they really worried about that from an economic standpoint? I think it really varies across communities. And you have some that are much more concerned with environmental sensitive and climate issues, some that are very conservative and dealing with, especially in a producing region, making sure the viability is there from a local level. Trade issues also come to bear. If you are close to the Canadian border, you care dearly about the relationship that's happening there and the jobs that are intertwined. So it's not one size fits all. As an industry, we're trying to be sensitive and recognize, for example, the risks of climate change. And we're trying to be on the front foot and moving the membership toward taking stances that are understanding of really global issues and trying to be part of the solution, not the problem. The most progress that the world has really made, and especially led by the United States, has been CO2 emissions reductions through the growth of natural gas, becoming more economic and supplanting coal and power generation. And whether we and here at the SAE meetings, as we talk about the energy transition and the panel I'm on is about um, especially transportation systems and how they might evolve and what the market impact on oil and gas, that feedback effect could be. It's anybody's guess when we go out, but we can identify the real hard economic issues and start to look at you know, where is this crossover and how much is it going to cost and who's paying for whom. Those are the kind of fundamentals that we go back to. And it was refreshing to hear you say, I know this, a lot of individuals that are listening know this, but there's a, a large majority that don't know this, that the natural gas and oil industry wants to be part of the solution. And you want to have a seat at the table. And that's impressive, and it's something that the public should realize, because not only does the natural gas and oil industry play a positive role in the economy, a lot of individuals depend on the dividend payments. A lot of retirees, that the, the financial strength of the oil and gas companies are absolutely tremendous yielding three, four, in some cases, even even a 5% dividend. You're allowing hardworking Americans and, and individuals overseas that own the stocks to retire comfortably. And and with the political issues, I have to commend you and congratulate you for taking it, it head on as you still, your members still work as, uh, focus on their financial strength. So it's really impressive. Oh, thank you. I, you know, it, Again, not one size fits all. It's a challenge for the industry in adapting to a lower price environment. When you cut your market prices in half from what they were just five years ago, there's going to be some pain that goes with that. And just like we talk about energy transition and what kind of um, takeoff point there could be for the penetration of new technologies coming in, I mean, effectively, that's what we've seen where you know, a decade ago or more, a relatively small fraction of wells in the United States were hydraulically fractured, right? Today, 95% of wells are hydraulically fractured. This technology has gone up the penetration curve and is basically driving the success the United States has had. So understanding where that's happening, how it's happening, but also being sensitive to what the environmental issues that come with it. And it's not just CO2. We're talking it's improving air quality. It's lowering particulates along the way as we're using more natural gas. It's also 
again, bringing all the economic benefits that we've talked about. So it's that nexus of trying to take the big picture, but also have a real meaningful dialogue along the way with different parties. And there's a trend that I've picked up throughout this conversation that the natural gas and oil industry is very focused on technology. Very, very innovative. And can you talk about some of the stuff and the, the positive impacts from a technology aspect that these you know companies are doing? That's a fantastic question, Grayson, because you know it's the one thing that when people think of our industry of natural gas and oil, they think of an older, dirtier industry, not necessarily one driven by innovation and technology. And that's really in the last decade what has changed fundamentally. It's when this energy revolution took off, people didn't really understand why it worked. They just figured out that they could make it work. And empirically, they figured out a way to produce resources out of this source rock that traditionally didn't. A decade later, at a molecular level, people are understanding using big data analytics and other real-time learning technologies, they're understanding how to improve those recovery factors, so-called. So when you drill, how much of the resource that's estimated to be in place are you actually recovering? And those still have tremendous upside even from here. And this is why for the naysayers who have said, nope, this is a flash in the pan and it's the bigger they are, the harder they'll fall and that this will go back to being something where the U.S. just normalizes. We're finding that the things that were supposed to be lower tier acreage that weren't supposed to be as productive, so tier two, tier three, that they're as or more productive than the very best acreage was five and ten years ago. So that is, and the, the US EIA tracks this, it's meaningful to see how the productivity trends have continued to rise to look through the service sector and really understand the technologies and the data analytics and the efficiencies that are being had because of everything from uh, remote monitoring, uh, underground analytics, above ground fundamental digitalization of technologies and being able to tie things together. All of these have a tremendous efficiency gain that's almost immeasurable in the sense that when you try to allocate to one or the other, you find that it's really the combination of them that has been enabling. Was there a defining moment that caused that that trend and that shift in the industry? Well, the ones that people look back to were you know, George Mitchell and Mitchell Energy back in 2005, you know, 6, 7, experimenting in the Barnett Shale in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. And that's the, the seminal, and they weren't the only firm doing this, but along with XTO and Devon and others, they they helped innovate and bring this technology to market. Those are the things that were really uh, track the most. But what has been just remarkable is how with the price downturn in oil, it, the U.S. continued to grow its production and it basically broke the stranglehold that, that OPEC had. Traditionally, it was managing the market within a way. And through 2014, their managing of that market was $100 oil. Well, they decided to try to just open the floodgates and see what would happen, expecting shale producers would collapse. And don't get me wrong, it was painful for a couple of mm -hmm. years. But with a lot of belt tightening, incentivizing even more technology and getting the efficiencies ramped up within the system. This is what I, I think actually the most exciting period has been pulling ourselves up through the last couple of years and adjusting to, you know, we've had oil in the last few years ranging between 50 and 70, but really not outside of that. So making a business that's profitable within that range with the resources that we've got and having a bright future and setting records and having the world rely on the U.S. and reaching these milestones of independence is nothing short of almost defying gravity. 
which is fascinating. Would you consider like the those companies from Texas Shell like startups back then? Would you consider like Mitchell like a startup at that point? They were long-standing businesses. It's just that they had been relatively small independents that weren't on the leading end. Of, edge of technology at that point in time. And credit to the Department of Energy for funding research and you know, providing the incentives for people to and the ability for smaller firms to play in this market. It, this is one of the misnomers, actually. When you think about global energy, you think about behemoth, massive integrated companies, national oil companies competing against them and having this sheer scale to, to drive innovation. And Innovation has really percolated up from smaller independents that it's truly an American model in the way it's worked. And that has been a continued theme even today where we see it's relatively smaller subsectors, especially in the service companies, that have continued to drive innovation. And maybe the most fascinating aspect of this is that it almost becomes a commodity as soon as it's developed, if you will. So these techniques have been things that uh, have diffused throughout the economy and throughout the oil and gas economy so that the production in North Dakota is benefiting as well as that in Texas, as well as that in Ohio or Pennsylvania. And it, it's interesting, um, you talked about an American model and Mitchell not necessarily being a startup. If we look at Silicon Valley, um, if you look at Lyft, for example, Lyft was a company called Zimride years before they changed the name to Lyft. And so they had the, the incubation. So Mitchell could have went through that similar process and then looking at it from a technology standpoint with the, the belt tightening, uh, with the oil price dropping, Silicon Valley is now going through the belt tightening, having to find revenue. So it's really interesting if you look at it through a historical angle, how going through that Texas shale revolution and what Silicon Valley is going through now with the belt tightening, it's these two worlds. Is, I always talk about history as our guide. And it's really interesting how oil and gas went through that. Silicon Valley is going through that. They're going to come out stronger as you continue um, to grow. And as we, we mentioned transportation, and there's a lot of new emerging technologies that are coming out of Silicon Valley, where in the valley there's a large push to make everything an electric vehicle Absolutely. or a plug-in hybrid. But while the valley wants to go that way, there was a report that came out from Edmonds, 2% of the vehicles sold, 17 vehicles sold in 2019 were either electric or plug-in hybrid. To me, there's still 98% of the vehicles are running on gasoline or diesel. How is the natural gas and oil industry preparing for this, this future of electric vehicles? Well, to be succinct, we are still trying to be part of the solution, not the problem. And just like the revelation that, that we've seen in our industry has been a function of technology and innovation, we anticipate as automotive manufacturers are betting increasingly on electric vehicles that there's going to be some sort of transition that comes, and they continue to make progress. Growing to 1% to 2% of sales, even though it's only 2%, it's a lot more than what it was, and it's continuing. Now, the issues are a level playing field in terms of economics, so really trying to discern how much do consumers really prefer this kind of vehicle? Is it really solving a different issue? If emissions reductions are ultimately the goal, and California and other states are trying to promote electric vehicles on this basis, you have to have an awful lot of renewables in your energy mix to have that make sense. But as soon as we talk about going to you know, 
70, 80, 100% renewables and electricity, it's almost like an infomercial and in that there are other costs that go with, it's not just the cost of the vehicle, which today, by the way, per Edmunds, is higher than a comparable internal combustion engine vehicle. The depreciation's higher. It's even higher than being a more expensive vehicle. It's higher because it's an EV and the secondary market for these things is not mature. And people are concerned about having, you know, if you have a Nissan Leaf, for example, a replacement cost on a battery seven, eight years down the road. Now, there are things business model-wise, insurance-wise, there are ways to overcome some of this. But the sheer cost of the thing, once you go to that, you need charging infrastructure at home and publicly. Then you need, if that grows a lot, more generation of electricity. So that has to come into play. And by the way, if you're going to do this, you need more transmission and distribution. And on top of that, if it's going to be highly renewable, you have to interconnect grids. You have to find ways to stabilize the grid. And if you want to do that without a fossil fuel that is cost-effective, like natural gas, and this is why natural gas, by the way, of the last decade has won such market share in the U.S. power generation, it is cutting emissions by half compared with a comparable coal plant. But at the same time, it's providing the flexibility and the reliability and the resilience to events within the electricity grid. Replacing that with batteries or other things is not cost effective today. So we have to just have an honest discussion about what things cost, what the all-in cost of these things is, and then who's paying for whom, who's being asked to cross-subsidize another within society. And if we can have a level playing field discussion in the same time understanding what the economic ties are with all of this, there is a transition that's both good from an economic standpoint and an environmental standpoint. And the other issue with um, electric vehicles is the supply chain issues. Um, it's been well documented uh, with lithium and, and cobalt around the world, some of the issues in, in the DRC, um, some of the, the lithium miners filing for bankruptcy, that that constraint of the supply chain is just going to continue to uh, drive up the prices of these vehicles where the American consumer will opt for the more cost-effective option. And as the natural gas and, and oil companies eventually start to prepare for this, I call them diversified energy companies. And they know R&D better than anybody. Is there a point where some of the, the oil companies that operate large uh, retail gas stations start to experiment by putting EV chargers in to learn, gather data to kind of understand and then try and grow their convenience store businesses? Grayson, great questions. And there's a macro level and a micro level. Thus, when you're talking about stores and installing recharging infrastructure, that's a micro level and even a local issue about what defines a utility, who's allowed legally to sell or resell electricity. Uh, if you want it to go fast, the utilities are maybe best positioned to do that, but that could foreclose competition in a market where you would have existing retailers able to install and sell electricity who are not traditional utilities. So these are issues that are playing out across the country, and then who pays for those and who's willing to pay for them in the business model. Just like Silicon Valley, there's a lot of experimentation with different business models to try to make that happen. That That's one of the issues. That Now, when you mention things like the Congo or a supply of lithium or cobalt or other rare earth minerals. The thing that is most striking from an oil and gas perspective is here we are for the first time, literally last quarter, celebrating this milestone of energy independence or interdependence for the first time being a net exporter, right? And we've 
it's been 60 years in the making to actually get there. And nobody thought even 10 years ago this would happen. So to have made this tremendous impact and reach this milestone and have this ability to control your own destiny from an energy standpoint and also from a national security standpoint, if you look back at recent events that have rocked the Middle East, we've had minimal price response in oil and gasoline, fuel markets, and natural gas as a result of this. So you add it all up, and why would you trade that for depending on a supply chain of rare earth minerals that effectively is highly controlled by China? So it's not just the mining of it, it's the refining of it, where a good portion of that is done in China. And the battery technology is also strategically, and a lot of um, the efforts by automotive manufacturers to penetrate this market is partly to play and sell vehicles in the fastest growth market, which is China. And that's not to say it's a bad thing, right? But as the United States, in creating our own energy policy and the choices that we make, we have to be cognizant of what the lay of the land is globally. And you're right, but then hit on the big the big issue: IP theft, intellectual property theft is is a huge issue, and national security. When we have all this IP theft, there's we've had incidents where the FBI has arrested individuals in airports stealing stealing codes, stealing various different things. It's been well documented, and 60 years in the making to become a next exporter to be to make America energy independent is something that the entire industry should hang their hat on to be very very proud. And you've had a very interesting, diverse career in the space. During during your career, what, what have you seen as we've worked towards that energy independence? So there's been milestones or bumps along the roads or some of the things from your experience that you could share that, that got us there? Well, we've talked about the path of the experimentation and the way this has taken off and the, the price cycles that have gone with it from you know, the big turn from 2014 to 15 and the belt tightening. And when you, you relate it back to China and intellectual property, the, maybe the example that comes closest to mind is uh, I worked for a company that uh, in North America was looking at gas to liquids conversion technology, but also had coal to liquids conversion technology. And in fact, in South Africa, Almost a third of the motor fuels come from this technology. So they looked carefully at doing this in China. And, you know, I think there was a broad recognition based on the experience in country that it was going to be a build one or two or build none kind of proposition. You have to expect, and this is the genesis of the Trump administration's uh, putting tariffs under Section 301 on on Chinese imports, trying to make intellectual property one of the things that is held up as something that must be protected from a U.S. national security standpoint. And as an industry, we have to stand back and respect that because despite the pain that goes with adjusting to tariffs and trade restrictions of various forms, this is real progress that's being made with the U.S.-China trade agreement. So we applaud the fact that the sides are getting closer there's still a lot that has to be ironed out, not just on the IP side in terms of the specifics, but the retaliatory tariffs, for example, that China has placed on U.S. exports. Those haven't clearly been lifted by anything that's been written about the trade agreement under phase one at this point. So we're hopeful that the details will reveal that there's more progress yet to be made here. Yeah, and we're, we're only beginning to, to see that progress and the, you know, tremendous progress uh, with the trade deal because... It's allowing um, you know America to shine and allowing all of our industries, not just natural gas and oil, but tech technology. You're seeing investments in the United States across the board, and it's having this 
very American proud resurgence and the, the economy is clearly demonstrating that. And as we look to wrap this up and I want to ask you, uh, it's been a wonderful conversation, but a really broad based question to close out. What is the future of the natural gas and oil industry in the United States? If we put it in context of global energy modeling and trying to read the tea leaves on what the future energy mix will be, there's no question, based on the sheer scale, the capital involved, the lifestyle that America has, that natural gas and oil play a very important part of that energy mix for many decades to come. It's embedded. And this is one of the misnomers when we talk about energy transition is that it, even from official international energy agency kinds of projections that we've seen over the last five to ten years, there's been an overlay by some of wishful thinking about this would happen sooner as an energy transition. The object lesson of what we've talked about through this conversation about how the shale revolution took off, it was technology, but it was technology that was incentivized by efficient market price signals. As oil and gas prices went up, People experimented to figure out how to make a business work in that. And the technology really snowballed from there. That's where we are as a world. Where we have to recognize that even last year, we were very close to record, not just supply, but demand. Demand being close to record in, you know, records for petroleum in the United States. Natural gas did set a record last year. So when we look at that in context... You can't wish it away in the sense that you have to realize it's contributing so much economic values, so much jobs, high quality jobs and wages, and then it's driving infrastructure and trade in this engine that is fueling everything from competitive manufacturing to petrochemicals, what have you. So when we add it all up, going back to the point made earlier, really the earliest one about as the economy grows, energy goes hand in hand with that, and gradually on a U.S. and a global basis, that may change. And we have to, as an industry, reflect that, have business models that are resilient to that. As you said, some view themselves as integrated energy companies. Others really don't. Some, they know what they are. They know what they have. They know their endowment of human capital and other resources, and they're going to do the best they can with that. But others are really trying to diversify actively. And you know what? That's what's fantastic about being able to adapt to this change. And it really is a parallel to Silicon Valley in the sense that you look at it as this microcosm of the shale revolution, electrification, all of these are potentially disruptive technologies. But the one that has truly proven itself to be disruptive is the shale revolution transforming the whole economy over this past decade. So with that, I, I hope that's on point in answering. But I, I'm really optimistic that this energy will continue to be really integral, not just for the United States, but globally over the next coming decades. It will, con it will continue, and the industry will continue to play an integral role in local communities, society, and the market. And as we've learned that efficient markets create economic value, we've learned that America is energy independent, and that the natural gas and oil industry will continue to play a large role in the future of innovation. And it shouldn't be lost on how much that industry innovates. And as Dean has clearly stated on this podcast, they have innovated. And with the shale, they will continue to innovate with the next new technologies that come along. They'll always be one to two steps ahead of where most individuals assume the industry to be. And um, Dean, we thank you so much for coming on the, the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. It's been a wonderfully brilliant, eye-opening conversation and can't wait to have you back again. Grayson, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to 
SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.